It's rare when a musician writes music that stays with us generation after generation. Those musicians are an extreme minority of all the musicians who came before them or since. They end up being included in the canon among the greats like Chopin, Beethoven, Mozart, Brahms, Handel, and Bach. And often, like most artists, their notoriety only begins at the time of their passing. Every now and then, someone comes along and breaks the mold. They release something so spectacular, so beautiful, that the world literally stops to take it in. During the years that this composition was written, it was full of turmoil and strife. The world was ravaged by a new kind of warfare. Tanks and machine guns took on the field against mounted cavalry on horses. Trenches cut Europe into zones and airplanes bombed and spied. And at the end of it all, the Prussian kingdom and the Russian monarchy were both over. The United States emerged as a world superpower. In 1920, when the Seven Movement Orchestral Suite was first performed publicly, the world stopped for an instant before launching its composer into the pantheon of the greats. That's right, folks. If you've listened to any classically composed music in the last 100 years, you've heard this man's impact. From Hans Zimmer to Klaus Balz to Alexandre Desplat, John Williams, and hell, even Danny Elfman. Today, we're talking about Opus 32, The Planets by Gustav Holst on Two Dudes and Tunes. Well, howdy there, everyone. You're listening to the podcast where two dudes sit around and talk about their favorite tunes. My name is Wood. I'm one of the dudes, and occasionally I remember to press record on the recording surface. (laughs) Chris and I, my other dude, just recorded about 15 minutes of this podcast before I realized we hadn't started. So you get take two with us now. Chris, now that we're here and recording, how's everything going on the tippy top of Texas? Uh, it's going about as well as it was 15 minutes ago. Um, and, and listeners, I, I pity you because we recorded the 15 greatest minutes of a podcast and, and the, the world will never session. know. This, yeah. This is the, uh, Ark of the covenant being wheeled into a U.S. government storage space <laughs> somewhere never to be seen again. It belongs in um, a museum. <laughs> You don't look very happy. Fools. Bureaucratic What'd fools. What'd they say? I don't know what they've got there. Um, but, man, it's going good. So, like I said before, Megan and I are uh, currently in the preliminary steps of going about trying to buy the house that we are renting. Um, our landlord expressed some interest in selling it to us a while back. Um, the house is kind of near and dear to him, it was he and his wife's first house. Um, and so it's really exciting. I, I'm, I'm fingers crossed that it works out and that, uh, you know, in a few months or however long the process takes, uh, I'll be able to come back and say, king of the castle, king of the castle. <laughs> yes, yes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. King in the castle, king in the castle. I have a chair. I have a chair. That is um, so awesome, man. I mean... Homeownership has been one of the biggest blessings to Tiffany and I over the years. So I'm excited for you and Megan to kind of be embarking on that journey. 
Yeah, we're we're very excited. We don't we don't really see. I mean, knock on wood, we don't really see ourselves leaving Lubbock anytime soon. But it, it'll be nice to be on our timetable if we want to leave this house instead of having to like you know race the end of a lease to get moved and all that stuff so we're really looking forward to it that and having the ability to do whatever you want with the house and not having to worry about you know what does the landlord think about me you know putting an outlet over here or doing something you know to the yard or whatever it's all yours it's your power if i want to put a jackalope uh, in the living room, I'm going to put a jackalope in the living room. If I want to paint the walls of our bedroom black, like a 15 year old kid, I can do that. I'll be out on the street because my wife is a sane person, but I could at least do that. How does Megan feel about black lights? (laughs) I don't know how she feels, but I can tell you that I think that would be gross. Find a black light. Place would look like a Jackson Pollock painting. <laughs> like we're clean people, but I'm not down. I'm super not down. I was just thinking about all the uh, the black rooms that have the iridescent paint that you can't see unless the oh. light is on. Oh, and then oh, see the the white rabbit is a club here in San Antonio, or was a club here in San Antonio that was notorious for that. Um. So I'm so glad that you brought the white rabbit up. Um, I want to take a moment to be really mean and say, I am so glad that place closed down. Oh, it was disgusting. Because I had to do, had to do like somebody put a gun to my head when I was in a band, you know, in high school, that was like one of the few places that would let younger bands play. And boy, it was just the pits. Like every part of it was falling apart. Like it was cramped. It was noisy. Um, I actually went to go see Coheed and Cambria there and like the crowd was awful. They almost, they, the crowd was like pushing up on the barriers mm-hmm. and they, they almost like they went off stage and almost didn't come back and do the show. Mm-hmm. Like every experience I've had at uh, the white rabbit has been garbage. So uh, hooray, it's gone. <laughs> It's been relaunched as something else, but it doesn't end Gross. up in the news like the White Rabbit did, like every week it seemed like. <laughs> yeah, uh, the only venue I've ever played at uh, whose floor was comprised mainly of hypodermic needles and beer cans, <laughs> fun fact. Wear Kevlar boots, folks. Oh, yes. Well, that's that's my neck of the woods. How's everything with you? It looks like you have been on vacation all week. Is that right? Yeah, so I had a whole bunch of vacation time banked that's kind of use it or lose it. And then on top of that, I had a bunch of paternity leave that is use it or lose it. And so basically for the rest of the year, I'm taking every Monday off and then I'm taking a couple of weeks here and there kind of around for the rest of the year whenever the need kind of arises. And so this week, it was one of those things where I had a bunch of chores to do around the house. And so I called my boss and was like, hey, can I uh, can I have a week off? And I've got a great backup person in the team that works with me is really good about covering for each other. So it just worked out that this was a great week to hang out with Maverick and Tiffany and uh, get an old car sold. When, when Tiffany found out she was pregnant with Maverick, uh, I got rid of her little car and decided to get her an SUV. I was like... 
now that you're the mother of my son, you must be in something big and, you know, protect. Yeah, something protect big. The and, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so something um, that's going to ruin the other car and come out without a scratch. Exactly. So, um, so her little Mazda three had been sitting in our front yard for literally a nine months and or in the you know the cul-de-sac next to our house for the last nine months and so monday tuesday and wednesday i got it running and cleaned and detailed and i intended to go sell it at like carmax or whatever and when uh, i told a friend about how much they had offered me he was like don't sell it and uh, they ended up buying it from me for what you know a little bit more than what carmax had offered so the car is gone and I hope it's as good for them as it was for me. And, uh, you know, we're kind of moving on. So other than that, I'm trying to kind of clean up our, my garage and our, our office space, whatever. It just kind of has been a collect all for the last year or so with COVID and everything going on. And behind me, it looks cool and all that, but on the other side of the camera, there's just boxes and junk just piled up. So got to get it all gone. Yeah, the audience from the live feed is uh, really getting a, a good look <laughs> behind the curtain at uh, everything. Well, I'm glad that you were able to get rid of a car that you didn't use. I'm sure it was a pollen magnet, too. Yeah, definitely. Well, and there's very few. We live in like a tract home neighborhood, so there's very few trees in our neighborhood. Oh, that's but, good. But still, good. the pollen in South Texas is so heavy this time of year that it still manages to find its way miles across town and all over uh -huh. my white cars. So. Oh, man. <laughs> it, not only is it ugly, but boy, if you have allergies, it is just a nightmare. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's it's a rough time to be here. We're, we're praying for the rain that you've got up there because it knocks it out of the air and kind of ends it for us. But generally this time of the year we don't get much rain so we just suffer yeah through it. yeah that's uh man i was so glad our backyard has looked like mad max beyond thunderdome <laughs> out there but without whitney houston what's this you think i don't know the law wasn't it me who wrote it and i say that this man has broken the law <laughs> or, or whoever whoever it is i don't remember i don't remember which famous singer it is but uh she's not out there it's just all the dead grass so we're getting some green in our lawn again well that's great hey are you ready to talk about uh the planets yeah why don't we get into orbit of the planets <laughs> All right, Chris. So The Planets was composed by Gustav Holst, as I mentioned in the intro. Kind of took place over a few years. He didn't just sit down and write this down in one big leap. Uh, he started in 1914 and completed it in 1916. And there's some conjecture online that he may have tweaked it a little bit before it was first publicly performed partially in 1918. Uh, when you look at his original handwritten music, which... Thankfully, we still have today. There are some conductor's notes in his own hand that would have been written about the time that it was first performed in 1918. So some of those carry through to today. Uh, what was your first experience with this album? 
or with this uh, so, this music. It's going to be hard for me to say it's not an album. Yeah, it's, it's it's a suite of music, an orchestral suite. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is interesting. This is the first instance where we kind of have to shift our our language about this because, you know, uh, this this is a a suite of music that has been performed by several orchestras. But um, my first introduction to the planets i think i was i was given this a lot of thought um and what i remember is playing jupiter in concert band mm-hmm. um we i don't believe we took this piece to like any of our competitions but i think the band director trotted it out uh, and we worked on it for a few weeks. If you're a, if you're a band kid, you know, you kind of know, like there's some stuff that the director brings out just to sort of teach you different things. Um, and then there's some stuff that you take to competition. So that, that is the earliest that I remember being exposed to the planets. And it was just that one movement that we played. And to be honest with you, I, I, I don't know if maybe like mom and dad had a copy of this lying around, but I just remember this being in my life like for forever. Mm-hmm. If, if that makes sense, I, I, I couldn't point to a specific moment where I went like, Oh man, I remember the day, you know, it was a Wednesday in April or whatever, <laughs> you know, I don't remember that, but, um, I did have I did have a flashback when uh, I was I was thinking about this. Um, so I brought up ex girlfriends before, which is always always dicey ground to be on, yeah, especially since but, your wife listens to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she knows that I love her. That's like the, the, we're talking about poor poor life decisions. <laughs> we're not reminiscing fondly here. Um. But there was a girl I dated, and I'm not even going to give her the dignity of a funny name or mention her name. She's just going to get the Voldemort treatment and be she who will not be named. Vader's on that ship. Now, don't get jittery, Luke. There are a lot of command ships. <clears throat> keep your distance, though, Chewie. But don't look like you're trying to keep your distance. Um, she was a violist, which... Um, orchestra kids that was my first mistake wasn't it <laughs> uh dating a violist um but she performed this with i think the utsa orchestra mm-hmm. um and i went to see it and about uh, what year was that oh man it would have to have been 2010 i think 2010 or maybe like spring of 2011 maybe okay no i think it was i think it would be fall 2010 because 2011 was when we broke up and i went to central and met megan um and i i almost i want to say that we went to that together because you were like oh man i love the planets Mm -hmm. and i'm pretty positive that we went to go see that together so that's my my connection to this is kind of like, I love the music, mm-hmm. but also I made the mistake of dating. dating she who will not be named. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dating a violist. Exactly. Uh, but what about you? What was your, cause this is on your list. I'm, I'm fairly familiar with this music, but it was on your list. Yeah. So I was, I have some fairly fond memories of the first 
few times I experienced this album. Um, like most 13 or 14 year old boys, um, I thought classical music was just drivel and boring and whatever. <laughs> the Finer Things Club is the most exclusive club in this office. Naturally, it's where I need to be. I, at the time, I was really into like, I don't know, Slayer. So classical music just didn't do it for me. And I got dragged to a performance at UTSA in either 2003 or 2004. And so I was making sure we didn't overlap there. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. This was way after you developed a taste and, for it because you were excited to go. Yeah. And so... um so 2003 or 2004, some family friends of ours, um, for those listeners who don't know, I was homeschooled and kind of homeschooled in kind of a co-op environment with one other family who had um, children about the same age as my brothers and I. And so that family was like, oh, you have to go listen to UTSA's, you know, orchestra perform uh, host the planets. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to go or whatever. And my parents were like, you're going. If, if the deal family <laughs> says that you need to do this, you're doing it. And so we loaded up with the deals. And conversely, I distinctly remember neither of my parents went. So they were like, interesting. <laughs> my parents were like, you have to go listen to it. So, do as I say, <laughs> not as I do. Exactly. Now that I'm a and parent, also, now that I'm a parent yeah. those things stick out to me. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah. And depending on their opinion of classical music, they may have been thinking, this is going to hurt me more, more than, than it hurts you. you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I remember going and kind of being in a, a poor attitude about the whole thing, uh, not being excited about it and kind of annoyed that I was going to go spend the next couple of hours of my life putting up with this. And then the lights dimmed. And Mars started. And then Venus and the whole thing just kind of flowed through. And by 45 seconds into Mars, I knew that I loved this. Like this, if this was the one thing that I liked out of it, the one movement that I liked, it was going to be okay. And I got to be honest, every movement all the way through Neptune just blew me back in my seat. And I was, I was 13, 14 years old, like I didn't know how to express emotion or handle what I was feeling or any of that. I was just flabbergasted by it. And I remember kind of leaving and trying to play it kind of cool, like, oh, well, you know, it was good, whatever. And then like a year later, uh, a 
friend of ours who was a Catholic priest, and I have tried for the last week to remember his name to save my life, and I just cannot. I keep coming to the idea that his name was Father Dominic, but that was not his name. He's a, a Haitian national who used to live in San Antonio and now lives in Florida. But he had been given tickets, season passes to the Majestic Theater in San Antonio. And so anytime the San Antonio Symphony was playing, he could go see whatever. But it was always on like Wednesday nights or Saturday afternoons when he had mass. So he couldn't go. And so he was spending a lot of time with my sisters who were adopted from Haiti, trying to keep their French Creole up and, you know, just hanging out with them and talking to them and stuff. So I ended up, you know, as a 15 year old, 16 year old, uh, going to a ton of performances of classical music by the San Antonio symphony. And I saw the planets probably nine times that year, like no joke. Um, that's fantastic. It was in their touring repertoire. You know, it was something that they played like two times a month or whatever. And every time it was playing, I got dropped off by my parents cause I couldn't drive yet and sat there and listened to it. So of all the, live groups I've ever seen. I have heard this piece of music probably more times than any other live. And it is worth hearing live, even if it's performed by a mediocre orchestra in a subpar orchestra city, it's worth listening to. Or by a a soon to be ex-girlfriend. I do vaguely remember going to see it in 2010 with you. I remember we sat towards the back and uh, it was early enough that I did not have a smartphone yet because I would have been trying to record the whole thing. Oh, <laughs> really? Interesting. Well, I know I for sure did not have a smartphone. I probably had one of those like Nokia oh, bricks. No, no, no. I had a Motorola Razor 3. All of yeah. my friends, all of my friends had iPhones and I was sitting there except for you. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did not. I was a generation behind. <laughs> But yeah, that little Motorola Razor 3, I remember distinctly uh, texting my dad from, you know, hanging out with Chris. We're at UTSA or whatever. And, you know, I, I, I belong to San Antonio College. I was a JUCO kid. Like, what are you doing at UTSA? <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's that it is so like I am very envious of your experience uh, being able to go see this more than once. Cause I haven't in truth, I haven't been able to go see nearly as much, uh, classical music as I would have liked. There was, uh, an instance in college where the music theory class got to go see, um, some of Haydn's music performed. Mm-hmm. And that was really fun. They did the, uh, surprise symphony and some of his other stuff. That's like really engaging. But, um, I want to go back and a little bit and talk about the origins of this suite Mm -hmm. because it's called the planets. And so most modern listeners, I think have this idea that maybe Holst was focused on like the astronomical significance of the Mm -hmm. planets. Um, But the, uh, the true story is sounds like a lot more modern. He was on vacation with a bunch of composer friends in Majorca. Um, so he's like cutting it up with 
you know, his like rich and famous composer friends. And they had brought along, one of them had like a little brother who was like a poet or something. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of like the twerpy odd man out. And he had brought this book called What is a Horoscope by Alan Leo? And it, it focuses on the influence of the planets on the psyche, like like what I would call mumbo jumbo, <laughs> but uh, it's, but, it's astrology, know. not astronomy folks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so this, this idea of these sort of different personality types and the way people respond to these different planets was what inspired Holst to write this, uh, so, you know, Mars, the bringer of war being obviously super warlike Venus, the bringer of peace, like a very like sensual kind of thing. It, it, it was all born out of this, like what I would call like kind of a hokey sort of thing. But I think that Hulse took that core idea and then ran with it and kind of explored human nature more in his own way mm -hmm. and it definitely it definitely shows in the pieces you know each movement is just packed with just a ton of feeling like why don't why don't you why don't you talk a little bit about it since this is your your week as it were well what i love about this is when this album was on my list you immediately were like oh my goodness this has to be talked about like it doesn't matter if it was our first episode or our 15th you know getting around to doing this one is something we've both looked forward to um gustav mm -hmm. gustav holst is a or was a british citizen he was from britain uh he was a fourth generation uh, musician his family hailed from Germany, and originally they were the von Holst family, and his father changed his name to Holst to kind of remove that German connotation, being as they were, at that point, British musicians trying to make a living in the British theater area. Um, he was kind of raised by two parents who were very, very busy. They both were professional musicians themselves. And so he was raised kind of in boarding schools and all over the place. And his parents, while semi-active in his life, he was more of like a latchkey kid. They taught him how to play piano, and he really wanted to be a pianist early in his life. But he was kind of weak. He had asthma. He had a bunch of health concerns. And one of the things he had was neuritis in his right arm, I believe. So he couldn't play the piano with great dexterity. It was really troubling for him to play the piano well. So he picked up the trombone and became a professional trombone player. Um, That's one way to handle <laughs> adversity. When in doubt, play well, trombone. Well, and while he was playing trombone professionally, he kind of told his dad, hey, I want to be a composer. And his dad tried to steer him away from composition. That was a poor man's game. You didn't make a lot of money being a music composer. I even today, I assume you don't make a lot of money because the odds of you making a hit are pretty slim to none uh, when the number one shot toppers have been dead for 400 years. What do you got to bring to the table? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I can't help but grin through you say because like for one thing, the modern day stereotype is like, 
Oh, son, don't grow up to be a musician. <laughs> um, but in the world of musicians, there's like also a hierarchy that's like, oh, no, you don't want to compose, do you? Those people never get. They never make you're it. You're never going to get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody's going to recognize you until you're like in the ground for 100 years. So that that made me laugh. Well, and so, you know, his father tried to steer him away from that whole justification for it was that, you know, he had weak eyes. Uh, he It wasn't until he was in his 20s they realized he needed to be wearing glasses. And his health really played a decisive part in his musical future. And he described it once that his arm was like jelly overcharged with electricity. Mm. So... Oh, man. So early on, he had limited success as a composer. He wrote... 31 pieces of music before he got to Opus 32, The Planets, and he had never really been able to make a living doing it uh, up until that point, even though he thought most of his work before The Planets was his better work. Uh, So kind of in a lark and needing to make a living, he decided to become a music teacher, and he started teaching uh, throughout his entire career for one of two all-girls schools, and he's remembered today as a guy who was a huge proponent of teaching women and girls a skill set that they could make a living on their own without needing to be reliant on, on you know, the, a male or the patriarchy or whatever you want to say it was, but he is pretty much beloved for being an early, you know, proponent of that kind of musical education, and he did from like 1903 to his death in, I believe, 1934, was a huge proponent of that and lived that life. Even after he was a world-famous composer, he remained as a teacher at all-girls schools. You know, it's interesting that he was a teacher. A lot of of those 18th and 19th century composers that we – admire in the Western tradition uh, did a lot of teaching Uh, Bach as an example. He, he taught a lot of like private lessons. So where we get the well-tempered clavier from, it's Mm -hmm. like all piano exercises. And uh, he also was just like a working dude. Uh, This is like kind of a digression, but he installed and tested like pipe organs Mm -hmm. And so I, th- I think there is something to, I mean, they always say it, a, a way to ensure that you know how to do something is to teach it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's interesting that Holst was so, um, education was such a priority mm-hmm. to him. It, I, I imagine that that is what gave him the like width and breadth and depth of knowledge to be able to compose something like the planets. Well, I think it's interesting in reading a little bit about him too. He wrote most of this suite of music in the soundproof room that he taught music in at the school. And so nobody knew he would go in this room for hours on end and be writing different pieces of music for all the different instruments. Uh, He originally wrote this as a, uh, a combination of two pianos and a pipe organ, and mm-hmm. then rewrote it after that for the full orchestra. 
but his original composition was two pianos and a pipe organ, and the pipe organ was only in Jupiter, I believe. Yeah, this this suite of pieces has some really interesting uh, orchestration, or not orchestration, excuse me, instrumentation. Uh, There's a tenor tuba, uh, which is like kind of an odd thing that you don't see every day. Um, tubular bells, uh, which is kind of like a fun, you kind of get like a church bell mm-hmm. effect from those. Uh, one of the things that is really striking to me that I, I did remember from having listened to this was the very last movement is um, Neptune the Mystic. Mm-hmm. And it ends with these really haunting, like a haunting chord sung by a choir. Well, what he did with the choir is he would have them kind of like hidden away in a, a compartment that was like off stage that people wouldn't see. And uh, it was one of the first instances where a composer attempted to like commit one of the seven deadly sins that we <laughs> complain so much about and just fade a track out basically. <laughs> Um, but there was a big door to this compartment. And so these this choir would sing and the door would slowly shut. They'd push the door shut. And the effect even recorded, uh, like, it's, makes the hair good. on the back of my neck yeah, stand it's up. It's good. <laughs> um, man, it's just the the amount of... innovation the amount of yeah the amount of innovation but also like just the things that were at his disposal to create music that is so engaging one of the things i was thinking about today listening to this music is it is as captivating or more captivating than some of the some of my favorite music that has lyrics mm-hmm and I think a big part of that has to do with the complexity. Um, I don't want to be too like music nerdy, uh, but there are parts of this suite of music. There, there are parts of different music that are in two different keys um, at the same time. There's competing uh, time structures. Yeah, exactly. Like the time signatures for Mars uh, are uh, the time signature for Mars is five, four, um, which for our listeners, like most of the music you're going to hear is in four, four, you know, four beats to the measure or whatever, but throwing that extra, uh, that extra beat in the measure gives it like a really menacing otherworldly feel. Yeah. Um, and just in general, orchestral music has a lot of complexity of texture that like, wasn't really achieved in pop music until we had the technology to you know, dub in all sorts of different things. Um, and so it's just really, it's really captivating in a different way than a lot of the like pop music that we listen to because there's such a different set of like 
colors being used, I guess, to make like an art analogy. Well, it's just a completely different world to be in. And, and I found that real refreshing. Well, and to build on that idea is think about the technology used to record these and to convey these in the 1920s. One of the things we'll talk about here in a little bit is there is a recording directed or you know conducted by Gustav Holst from 1926. It's recorded in mono. It was one microphone in the hall. Woof. That's actually, rough. <laughs> dude, it is actually really good, except huh. you're not going to like what it proves about this piece of music or this, this suite of music. And that is Holst intended for it to be played a lot faster than it is normally played. Yeah, I see. I wonder because we had we had this discussion, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But um, for that recording, I'm sure it was like technological limitations, right? Because they couldn't they didn't have time to like put like 60 minutes on a. Oh, no. No, they had reel to reel tape and it would have been recorded with a single microphone placed in an ideal location in the London Symphony Orchestra's home auditorium, wherever it was at that time. Uh, I think it's Queens Hall is where they played at the time. I may be wrong on that, so don't quote me on it. But it was totally limited to that was cutting-edge technology for 1926 recording an orchestra. But fast forward to today, where we have 65 microphones and 85 tracks, and the, Mm -hmm. the guitarist comes in on Monday and lays down his track, and then the drummer comes in tomorrow and records his track. This was one shot winner take all recordings of the entire orchestra. And yeah, it's brass heavy because brass cuts through, you know, the mix or the, the sound in a room, but you get the whole experience and you can hear how he would have conducted it. If it was one of his, you know, orchestras recording. So it's kind of a cool comparison to, uh, Adrian Bolt's recordings or uh, Charles uh, uh, de Troyes recordings or any of the number of other composers who have, or not composers, um, conductors who have recorded it over the years. Uh, I do want to take a pause though, before we go to that discussion and talk a little bit about how this album or this composition was first released to the public. It was finished in 1916 and Gustav Holst, one of his best friends, was a man who eventually was knighted, so Sir Adrian Bolt. And the two of them had decided that they weren't going to release it to the public until World War I or the Great War was over. So in 1916, when this ended, the war was going and Holst didn't feel like it was the right thing to do to pull musicians in when they should be focused on the war effort and there would be time for art after the war was won. So they put it on hold and about two weeks before the armistice was signed, uh, Adrian Bolt and Gustav Holst were given the opportunity to perform this uh, piece of work in Queens Hall and they rushed it into production but decided to not play the whole thing because people who had read the sheet music and had looked at it uh, said it was too different, too too innovative, too radical for classical music for the audience to sit through the whole thing. 
So certain pieces were cut and removed, much to Hulse's chagrin. He said the whole thing needed to be heard all the time, but I think Adrian Bolt was probably right in only playing four out of the seven pieces and letting the audience kind of get a feel for it. And that was in 1918. And then in 1920, the whole thing was revealed finally. So bumpy start at the beginning, but by 1920, it had so much buzz around it. It was already super popular uh, in Britain and in America, where the, I believe the Boston Symphony Orchestra had played it a couple of times, uh, unknowing to Gustav Holst even. You know, it, it, I want to I want to go back a little bit because one of the th- one of the things you'll notice in in this piece, one of the things that is most striking to me is a lot of the like really kind of strident, um, dissonant harmonies mm-hmm. in some of uh, some of these works, and Holst was influenced by a lot of his like contemporaries and some people who were kind of like his contemporaries, but also like his predecessors. Um, but one of those people was Igor Stravinsky who dire- uh, directed, um, who composed uh, the Rite of spring and the Rite of spring debuted uh, 29th of May, 1913. Um, and uh, the Wikipedia says many have called the first night reaction a riot or near riot. Um, and if you read about it, it's comical. People lost their minds because Rite of Spring was very like dissonant, had some like harmonies and a ballet that went with it that people interpreted as pagan. So I wonder if Holst saw that reaction or maybe Adrian Bolt did and was like, no, 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 no. We do not want a Stravinsky. Let it breathe. Um, Let it breathe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I, I feel for him because this mute, like, regardless of what he felt about it later, I'm sure that he knew. Like, I think a lot of composers, uh, even if they don't know how big something is going to be, they know when they have something good on their hands, usually. Yeah. Or, or something and they're extremely the- proud of, at least. Exactly, exactly. And uh, what I was reading, I don't remember all the the pieces, the movements that were left off, but Neptune the Mystic, which is like one of the most striking movements to me, is one of the ones that they left out because it was too like formless and people were going like, ah, oh, nobody's going to understand that. Like it, was it has Neptune, no direction or whatever. It was Neptune, Uranus and Saturn. So the last three movements just cut off. Oh man. And those, those are three that's of the best like, ones. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the whole thing is just amazing, but I, that, I think that music to my ear is some of the most, is probably what a lot of modern composers that we um, would notice what they pulled from, you know, a lot of, if you think about like the scores to like horror or suspense films, Anything like that, Anything you know, you Hans can kind of draw John Williams. I mean, exactly. I mean, I, and I, I don't want this to turn into like, you know, Holst walks so that John Williams could run because, um, you know, Holst music is in a category unto itself, but John Williams took inspiration from mm-hmm. it and introduced like pretty much our generation 
to orchestral music mm -hmm. because of what Hulse did here. Well, um, and I threw shade at Danny Elfman in the intro. I got to be honest, but it made me <laughs> it made me feel so good because I do not like that man's work at all. You don't like the original score to the 1989 Batman movie? Uh, I like Prince. Prince is my. Oh no, Prince was in the second one, he was wasn't in the he? Second one. Prince was in the 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 one with Danny DeVito. Elfman Elfman scored both those movies, and he scored the Batman comic that was out or our cartoon that was out in the early nineties. Yeah, um, I I shouldn't throw that he, much shade on Danny Elfman, but boy, some of his music just. Oh no, no, no. he oh, rightfully grates on my nerves. One of my favorite pop culture references to Danny Elfman is in the Star Wars parodies from Family Guy where John Williams and his yes. orchestra get killed and Chris goes, great. Now we got to do the rest of this thing with Danny Elfman. Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, that's one of my favorite bits. But yeah, his his influence is far reaching by composers, both talented and annoying. <laughs> Well, hey, I did want to uh, mention... Sponsor of the show, Danny Elfman. Yeah. We love you, bro. Lethal Weapon was your best work. <laughs> uh, oh, man. So um, one of the things I did think was really interesting from the research for this week, how often does somebody get to write the music that essentially becomes the secondary national anthem of your country? In the USA, we have the Star Spangled Banner, and secondary to that is America the Beautiful. Everybody knows both those songs. In Britain, they have God Save the Queen, or King, depending on who's in power at the time, and I Vow to Thee, My Country, which I Vow to Thee, My Country is based on a poem by Sir Cecil Spring Rice, which was written in either 1909 or 1912, depending on who you ask. And Gustav Holst loved that poem so much that he put it to an adaptation of the music from Jupiter in 1921. And since then, it has been a runaway success as like a secondary anthem for the the UK. Um, it was played at Winston Churchill's funeral. It was one of the few requests that Churchill personally made in his will that it be played. It was played at the wedding of Princess Diana and Prince Charles. And then it was played at her funeral again. It's played before sporting events. It's all over the place. And that's something that Gustav Holst wrote. And it's a hauntingly beautiful song. If you haven't ever heard it before, it's a much slower version of Jupiter and it's just, it's beautifully written and beautifully performed by just about anybody who's recorded it and released it. I found a version of it on YouTube and it was really good. I need to check that out. I'm trying to think of a, an analogy in my head. It's like if, like if somebody found like the middle strains of uh, Freebird super inspiring and like put different words to it and that became like national anthem number two which i'm i'm down for like no shade on our national anthem Freebird should just be national anthem number two just don't change anything <laughs> we, we have to we have to sit through not only the regular <laughs> national anthem but also the like 10 minute live version with the guitar solo at the end Dude, it's perfect because you're already drunk at a sporting event and some guy in the back go, play Freebird! <laughs> but boy, are you in luck, sir, because we are about to play National Anthem number 2, Freebird. 
Oh, well, that's great, man. Uh, so let's kind of steer this back onto topic and talk a little bit about the different versions that are out there. This music has been in the public domain since the 1950s, which basically means anybody can play it, anybody can record it, and anybody can release it. So there are, no joke, I looked it up before we recorded today, 75 versions of this music available for you to stream on Spotify. So that's one of the things that makes classical music interesting to me is you have this canon of work mm-hmm. that can be interpreted in not an infinite number of ways, right? Because the composer has their instructions for how it's to be performed. But you and I listened to a couple different versions mm-hmm. this weekend. It had very different reactions. I listened to Adrian Bolt's version uh, around 50 to 55 minutes long. Uh, but the version you listened to by Charles Dutois ran what, like 48 to 52? Yep, depending so, on the recording. Yep. So what that means is they were going at a much faster clip and we, we kind of com- like, I kind of a beat them. Mm-hmm. And uh, my experience was that I really liked the way uh, Adrian Bolt's conducting of these pieces went. I felt like each movement unfolded in kind of a more timely manner. It didn't feel rushed, but you talk a little bit about your experience with the, the Montreal symphony version, because you really liked that one, right? So I'm a little bit partial up until earlier this week, I would have told you I was partial to bolts interpretation. In fact, after we picked this album, I scrolled through and listened to a couple of tracks with you from a couple of different versions to find the one that I was remembering. And that was Mm -hmm. Bolt's 1972 London Symphony Orchestra recording. Or wait, was it London Symphony or the London Philharmonic? I think it was the Philharmonic. I think it was, yeah, it was the Philharmonic. (laughs) So that was the recording that I kind of grew up around and felt like the most people impersonated. But kind of for the fun of it, uh, early this week, I listened to Charles Dutois' Uh, I believe it's 1975 recording with the Montreal Symphony. And it is faster. It's, I don't like Mars as much as I like Mars by Bolt. So let's go ahead and just throw that one out. Like, I agree. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the depth of the layers and the frantic energy that is trying to be conveyed in the music comes through more in Dutois' recordings. Uh, I know from conversations with you, you're not as big a fan of the reverb on the lower ends. Kind of like the space maybe have added a little bit more color than wanted, but I felt like that was a good relief from the brass in most of the songs other than Mars. Uh, Mars was a little muddy, but that low end reverb really helped fill out the brass from like Jupiter or, even Neptune, it really filled out Neptune for me in a lot of ways. So all that to say, it's all up for interpretation. One of the things I thought was interesting in doing my research, somebody had mentioned in an online forum while talking about just this huge rift in like the music community. And I didn't realize 
any hobby, I guess you have people who are huge advocates of one thing and detractors of another. And so Mm -hmm. in looking into research and actually looking for reviews of performances of these albums, I found that there's a huge rift in the, the Holst fandom between the versus bolt. And the people who like the Bolt versions don't like the people who listen to the Detroit versions and <laughs> vice versa. Like there's a huge rift there. And one of the people who was a proponent of Detroit was pointing out that uh, the only known recording of Holst conducting this occurred in 1926 and he recorded it and his recording of it comes in at a crisp, clean 43 minutes. So a oh, full man. five minutes faster than Detroit and almost seven and a half minutes faster than Bolt. So you take I, it's so fast. And the comments, it's available. It is. Let me put it this way. It's available on YouTube for you to listen to. Uh I wonder if some of it may not be like some distortion in the recording technology. So it's 43 mm-hmm. minutes, but it's because we're listening to it in 120 X speed or whatever, um, or something like that. Like maybe that's a recording medium. You know, it's a hundred year old recording almost. Maybe that's the problem. But regardless, the people who were commenting on the YouTube video uh, were talking about, oh, shoot, I play oboe and this is at 180 beats per minute. Like this is impossible to play like this is. This requires yeah. a really talented person to play this piece of music. But that, regardless of who you're listening to, whether it's Bolt or Detroit or even Hulse recording, it requires talented musicians. It's not easy on any part. No, it, and that I think is what makes um, what makes art so interesting. And I, I, I probably brought this up like way too many times before in this podcast already, but the amount of variation that can be between two people listening to the same piece. Now we're multiplying that by a factor of 100 because we're talking about how is a conductor Mm -hmm. going to interpret the music? How is each individual musician going to interpret that? And then you have in rehearsal the process of, these musicians bringing what they've practiced and their knowledge and the conductor's idea of this is how I want to do things. It makes for a really varied amount, like the amounts and variations on just one piece of music is, is pretty, pretty thought provoking. Um, and it's it, it kind of makes me want to go dig up different versions mm-hmm. and check out and kind of see like, well, how how did the how does this orchestra interpret it? How did this conductor interpret it? it it's been very refreshing, I'll say again, because it it was very different than kind of the normal like, this is the album, this is what we got. There are no other interpretations. I may be wrong on this, but I'm like. sure there's a John Williams recording of this and it is on my hit list to go listen to regardless of what gets picked tonight because I want to know what the composer of Star Wars took away from this more than just Star Wars music yeah and that's real briefly before we go on a critical reception one of the things that was really delightful 
uh, listening to this is you can hear stuff so clearly from other works, whether Mm -hmm. it's the scene in Indiana Jones where the Nazis open up the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant or, you know, um, Luke confronting the emperor and Darth Vader at the end of return of the Jedi, you know, and it even, even to an extent, like jaws, I was just going to say the the theme theme from Jaws. Jaws. Yeah. (laughs) Like uh, all of this is like writ large all over this music. And it's fun to think that, you know, you listen to somebody like, John Mayer and go, Oh, well he was copying Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, well Stevie Ray Vaughan was copying Jimi Hendrix. Oh, well Jimi Hendrix was copying Albert King. The same kind of things were happening in or you know, in orchestral works hundreds of years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all, that is how we all learn and grow as musicians is by looking at what came before and going like, Oh, I love that, but I can do something different, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, here's how I think it should be. So let's talk a little bit about critical reception. This is a hundred-year-old piece of music, and there are a lot of reviews of different recordings of it, but very little based on the actual release of this music originally back in 1920. I did find something that was pretty on par with it uh, from classical.net. You want to give that a read? Yeah, uh, and this kind of speaks to what Holst thought a little bit about this piece, but I'll go ahead and read the quote now. Uh, The Planets is one of those pieces like Stravinsky's La Sacra or Grieg's Piano Concerto, at once atypical of their composer and enormously popular, which nevertheless deserve their popularity. It also, like Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, creates a powerful new musical landscape. So powerful, indeed, that almost nobody else has been able to follow up on its expressive possibilities. The Planets appears to have burst without a precedent on the musical scene and to have been dropped by Holst, who never again wrote another piece like it. Yeah, I think that speaks a lot to Holst being really shy. I don't know if we mentioned that earlier, but he really kind of battened away at the fame. It was not one of the things that he wanted in life. And to be a composer and be popular in your lifetime is kind of rare. And he was essentially a rock star in the 1920s and thirties, you know, up until his death. Um, Critically, this album, this suite was a raging success and he wanted other music to shine. And I think that ultimately hurt his interpretation of this music in some ways, because it overshadowed everything else that he'd spent a lifetime working on several operas, several ballets, several other suites of music. And none of them have ever shown to the level that this one did. And I have listened to a few of them, but I'm just as guilty as the rest of society in a way where my attention always turns to the planets and not necessarily to his romantic comedies or any of that kind of stuff. Well, and, and it, this all kind of speaks to something that uh, Schwartz said, you know, he, he says the planets uh, appears to have burst without a precedent on the musical scene. Um, Holst, I think probably part of his nature as a recluse meant he was paying a lot of intense 
attention to the music around him. And he really synthesized a lot of the stuff that was going on in a new way that made people sit up and pay attention because he's drawing on a lot of different stuff that one of the things I was excited about this week was I got to flex my like stuff I learned in college muscle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was influenced by contemporary composers that probably most people weren't like listening to like somebody like Arnold Schoenberg um, who wrote a lot of conceptually interesting, but kind of challenging dissonant pieces um, for the music theory nerds out there is based on uh, some 12 tone scales. And then he would like put those scales into some kind of grid. It was very mathematical, Um, but he was also synthesizing stuff that people would have heard and maybe connected with more somebody like Claude Debussy, who was writing these really beautiful impressionistic pieces using harmonies that people hadn't really heard that much up into that point. Um, And also as a brass guy, he loved Wagner, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the ring cycle, that kind of thing that was right up his alley as a trombone player. But he took all these things and, you know, uh, honestly, kind of a lot like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, these directors that John Williams scored music for, they all synthesized these elements that people had already seen to create something new and different and exciting, but still really rooted in tradition. So I I thought it was interesting that, that, uh, that writer said that it burst without precedent because it had a precedent. It was just all, like all stuff that maybe people didn't connect with as much and hadn't been synthesized in a way they could get. Well, I think that's awesome, Chris. I think it's time for us to get to our reviews of this. And I think you should start first, but before you do, let me remind our audience that we use a one to six guitar string review model, six strings being the greatest thing ever written and one string being a composition that probably should have been erased. So where did you fall with this week's The Planets? So I think we've said this plenty of times in this episode, but orchestral music just hits different. Um, I don't want to be hyperbolic because if any of you know a fan of classical music or an orchestra kid, Uh, You know that they are diehard stands. This is the music to end all music for them. Um, I think that there's room in art for just myriad forms of expression. But man, this suite is just pure magic to me. Uh, We've talked about how emotionally impactful each movement is. um, And this, it's just full to the gills with expression uh, from the mechanized inhuman horror of Mars to the ethereal haunting strains of Neptune's Um, Hulse just his, this work demands attention. Uh, It demands attention in a way that even he didn't fully understand or maybe even agree with. Um, And I've mentioned already that it was kind of delightful being able to hear where John Williams got his ideas from, where Star Wars came from. Uh, And 
I think instead of making value judgments about like, oh, well, Holst is better because he was the original article or, oh, John Williams, you know, made this palatable to everybody. I think it's better to just say that I'm glad that Holst's music inspired John Williams and I'm glad that John Williams wrote music inspired by Holst. Um, if we ever do a top 10 of each other's albums, like these are my 10 favorite albums that you like, and these are, you know, if we do that, I'm, I, I would put money on the fact that the planets uh, is going to make the top 10 for sure. And there's probably a decent chance it would make the top five. I have to give this six out of six strings on a Collings guitar, which all you guitar players out there know that a Collings guitar is just top of the heap. It's as good as you can get. It's going to cost you lots of money, but that's where this album lands for me. Six out of six strings. What's your take on it? When I was 13 years old and I went along with the deal family to a concert that the honors program was doing at UTSA, I didn't have any clue what classical music was other than boring. Suffice it to say, I walked out of that performance, a changed man child. Since then, anytime I see that this is being performed live and I have the ability to get to it, I try to make it out. At this point, I've seen this anywhere between 8 and 10 times live, and maybe more than that that I don't even remember. This was a gateway composition for me to other great classical music, and it opened my mind and heart to the emotions and profound understanding that could be heard while listening to classic music. This is an incredibly rich album. The meter, the tone, the timestamps, the orchestral vibes, the way the people play music together and the way that it is led is just so rich and full in a way that I don't think I've ever heard anywhere else. It's really thought-provoking. It challenges you. It really hooks you in. Its beauty when conducted and played properly is unfathomable, even a hundred years later. Composers are still drawing inspiration from it, and I just think this album is perfect. This this is the perfect set of music. This album by Sir Adrian Bolt and Gustav Holst get six out of six strings from me and a five-minute standing ovation, because that's a thing apparently in classical music. So if you don't stand for the ovation, you're a heartless Grinch, and uh, I pity you for your lack of ability to love. So fight me. Six out of six. <laughs> yes, I agree wholeheartedly. I'm, I'm right there with you with the five-minute ovation. So obviously you and I are on the same page with this one. Uh, what was your favorite and least favorite movement? Since we have no tracks this week, they're <laughs> movements. What uh what what do you feel on that? Man, I was all over the place this week with this, depending on where my mood was. And today I'm gonna say, even though Mars and Jupiter are the big guns, everybody knows them. Everybody knows Venus to a certain way. I'm picking Saturn, because that's just not that I feel like I'm old or falling apart or anything, but there's something about that movement that just really resonates with where I am at the moment. But tomorrow that'll change. Everything on this album is great. So mm -hmm. what about you? What was your favorite? Uh, so my experience listening to this this week that I didn't go into much and I'll try and get through just super quickly is with all the chaos of trying to get to the gym, trying to get to work, 
figuring out loan applications, which are not any fun at all. Um, in when uh, on Wednesday morning, I was in a super negative headspace. I was irritated. I was tired. I didn't want to have to get to work. I was thinking about the fact that I still hadn't sat down and given this music a dedicated listen. And so I just put my headphones in and listened to it the whole morning while I was just, instead of like watching TV or whatever, I, I like turned the iPad off and just fixed breakfast and listened to the planets. And the, the thing that was so striking to me uh, was that uh, the last two movements, Uranus, the ma- magician and Neptune, the mystic, um, because I was trying to keep track of when one ended and another mm-hmm. began, at least on the, the Adrian bolt recording, those two really flow into each other. Um, and they're both, even though they both kind of work almost as like a separate piece unto themselves, they're both very different. Uh, the magician is full of pomp and bluster, uh, but it's also strange and eerie and a little foreboding. Um, and it bleeds right into, uh, Neptune, the mystic, which is just like the most like spare kind of haunting instrumentation. The end that I brought up with the choir just slowly fading away. It was just, man, like what a showstopper to end something on. And so those two have to just be tied for my favorite movement. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and say that I refuse to pick a least favorite movement uh, because I legitimately enjoyed all of these. Um, they're each unique and different and entrancing in their own way. So no, I, I don't have a least favorite. I couldn't pick one. I just threatened people to fight me if they didn't think this was the perfect album. So <laughs> I will not pick anything either because there is no fat to cut from this. I will say Holst was pressured for years to write a movement for Pluto, and he refused and refused. (laughs) And what I think is ironic about that is, you know, he was right. Pluto isn't a planet, so suck on that, nerds. (laughs) But he also also never moved to write a piece for Earth either. And it wasn't until I was really reviewing this and thinking through it that I thought it was striking that there was nothing for Earth in his movements. I think that's cool. Don't get me wrong, but it wasn't something that was on his radar. Well, I, I was, I, I found that curious too. And I read up a little bit about it. It's because earth isn't really featured in any of the, um, astrology lore or mythos. I don't think it has that much of a place in that. I, I could be wrong. Somebody email me because I haven't checked my horoscope in, oh, 31 years. <laughs> but, um, you know, I don't, I don't think Earth features prominently. The only thing that I think was omitted that you could probably point to as like an intentional omission perhaps is the sun and the moon because mm-hmm. I think they have a prominent space and astrology and that kind of thing. But I think earth was omitted because it just wasn't in the book and it wasn't like a part of the overall scheme. Well, th- I learned something today cause I was too busy getting a real education. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Well, what's, what's wrong with the school of hard knocks? 
I was talking about the school of astrology is not a real education. Oh, I thought you were just <laughs> casting shade on the fact that I was working for a living. No, no, no. We both work for a living. Don't even, don't even kid yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I, I just like giving you a hard time. Well, cool, man. I think we've just about traveled the whole galaxy and we've brought it back to, we need to pick what's for next week. So let's stop in the corner of the cosmos. That is the Oracle's domain. Let's do it. Do you think real quick, do you think the Oracle is Neptune, the mystic? I kind of think it is. Maybe we should be consulting Neptune every time we pick our new, uh, new album. I feel like the Oracle's offended. We haven't given it a name yet, so Neptune works for me. All right. Sweet. Here we go. Chris, from your list, the Oracle Neptune returned six, which is John Mayer's Continuum album from 2006. Oh, hot dog. I am super excited, but this is like the, he's part of the Holy Trinity of guitarists for me is John Mayer, David Gilmore, who we've already talked about and, uh, Jimmy page. That's my like Holy Trinity of guitar players. So, um, I'm ready. I'm ready for some pop blues guitar goodness. Yeah, so am I. It's going to be great folks. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our show, please rate and review it. We might even read your comments on the air. Yeah, and uh, if you want to get in touch with us, shoot us an email at twodudesandtunes at gmail.com. And don't forget to hit us up on Instagram or Facebook. I've been trying to keep up with that. I kind of uh, dropped the ball recently, but uh, um, do some commenting and tell us what you thought. We'll get back to you. Uh, tell us what you thought of this week's album, The Planet. And don't forget to tune in next Wednesday where we pop the collars on three polo shirts. And uh, hopefully we don't go through quite as many girlfriends as John Mayer did. You guys take care. <laughs>